Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. If you look across the harbour from Central, you can spot buildings that have a square carved out as part of their structure. The dragon holes that allow the dragon to travel down from the mountain or up from the sea. Since moving to Hong Kong a few years ago, American-Australian artist Eric Niebuhr has been fascinated by dragon holes. This year, he created paintings using acrylics to show the atmospheric effects around them. I joined him at the Kaki Gallery of Objects in Saiyingpun to look at his exhibition. Master Kan Lung, a feng shui practitioner, also explains to me the concept of dragon holes. Later in the programme, Jonathan Wattis tells me about two exciting discoveries. Photos using what's called a mammoth camera of Hong Kong by American photographer Charles Leander Weed, taken in 1866, that no one knew existed. But first, let's go where there be dragons. The funny thing is, it's, what I like when things mesh uh, conceptually and formally, and so uh, when I was first introduced to this idea, when I moved to Hong Kong, I was looking around and someone told me about, well, I saw the building and I saw this space, and I just asked them, you know, what's the deal with this space? Because especially in a space that's so occupied with using every little space and then having a designated area that's intentionally avoided, like, or intentionally framed as a special place, but it's a non-utilized space. Um, so once, once someone said, oh, they said the term dragon holes, it was a very kind of emotive and it had a lot of connotations and suggestive and it's like, ooh, a dragon hole, you know, what does that mean? It's just very, you know, evocative and just, yeah, you just visualize this dragon passing through this space and it's like, wow, that's pretty amazing. So it was like, what could I do with that? And that was what's, you know, it gave me a seed to kind of investigate these phenomenons. Yeah, which was the first one you saw? Uh, actually, it was uh, in Cyberport. It was the, the, the apartment buildings there. It's a bit matrix-like. It's strange the way the buildings are kind of configured. And I was, I was less interested in the buildings themselves, but again, of this all of a sudden, this opening space. And then the second time, uh, it's becoming a reoccurrence. I was actually at the floating restaurant in Aberdeen and looking up in some buildings in that area. And uh, then someone brought it up again, oh, Dragon Holes. And I was like, okay, this is something quite... Phenomenon. So I started documenting these spaces and just sort of looking and trying to excavate what kind of things, inform, visual information I could find to use for painting. It's, it's nice that it has a reference to the Dragon Hall, but also I went to how it works as a painting too and how the viewer can experience that. One of the comments that you've made is that um, you were very interested in the atmospheric effects on the Dragon Hall itself. So structurally, if we're having a look at your paintings, did you want to represent the Dragon Halls at different times of the day? Uh, yes, I mean, that was what one of the factors when I first started looking at this phenomenon. I would look at the times of day and times of light and obviously the atmospheric conditions. So Hong Kong, you know, there's uh, sometimes it's smoggy. It's not often very clear, um, but obviously uh, different types of day. I was also a little bit of thinking about thematically, like, uh, not that I was that structured, but look at Mo Monet's uh, uh, cathedral paintings where he looked at one cathedral at different times of day and how that shifted with the light conditions and the facades. There was, there was a little bit of art history kind of things that I kept pulling out through. That you wouldn't notice it in the pieces, of course, but there's little things, notes that I made to myself, which I thought would be interesting to investigate. So 
when I photograph these buildings at different times of day, from diff, um, often from far distances, um, uh, what would happen was uh, things I wouldn't notice with the naked eye would occur digitally. Once I went into you know d- uh, digital processes and the computer, focusing in and zooming in on the photograph, for example, in the pixels, I would notice it pick up uh, flakes of light and color that were quite unusual combinations of color and contrasting color. And um, so I try to play around with those atmospheric f- effects for the paintings. Yeah, well, actually, you used acrylic for the paintings? Yes, the, the, the medium is acrylic, so that's primarily what I've worked in for the last 15 years. Sometimes I'll work both with oil paint and acrylic, but um, I find uh, di- for different purposes, but I find that I can create the, the sort of a, uh, material effect that is necessary with the acrylic. So the acrylic has uh, a really uh, flexible medium in terms of pourable, so I, I mix up the paint quite uh, a viscosity that's almost like uh, I'm going to say pancake batter. <laughs> it's not that's not quite exotic, but that's the best description of it. And so I work flat uh, with the painting uh, on a on a like on a table, and then uh, mix up the paint in a you know a little um, Tupperware jar and mix up the viscosity so it's pourable, but I can actually control it. So they're not accidental drips. They're not like Jackson Pollock, you know, on the floor dripping around, but I'm actually pouring the paint really kind of methodically and carefully. Looking at this one on the right here, can you describe it to me? Because what I'm really interested in is just the depth. When you look down, I'm getting lost in the middle there. So, yeah, that's um, in terms of the depth, um, that's another thing that was interesting for me. Like, uh, looking at both traditions, uh, two different traditions in painting, I was thinking about the sort of the Renaissance tradition of the idea of the painting being a window, literally, where you look into a scene. But I was also interested in the more modernist idea of painting where it's everything's on the surface and more emphasizing the flatness or the two-dimensional qualities. So that's one of the things I'm playing around with. So I'm, there is a sense of depth, but it's quite, you're not sure if it's sort of coming forward maybe or going back. It kind of goes back and forth in terms of recession, recessive space or space coming forward. And I like that ambiguity. So I like the viewer to kind of hopefully spend time and kind of immerse themselves in it. But one of the things about the uh, atmosphere that I was interested in was this notion of being on the precipice of like looking out into like the void or on the edge of something, looking out into space. Uh, and there's different traditions that use that in painting. If you look at uh, romantic painters from the 19th century, like Caspar uh, David Friedrichs, this idea of this romantic idea of the isolated figure amongst the sort of the uh, abyss of, uh, you know, like looking into clouds or looking from a mountaintop down. Also looking at uh, uh, tradition of Chinese painting, the use of the uh, negative space and, and the importance of that, the void for the space that's not dominant. And then also um, more contemporary times like Mark Rothko, abstract painter, and he just he would do paintings that were completely abstract and, and dealing with the void concept as well. But obviously I'm sort of digesting these things again, but using things that I feel could be interesting in terms of visual experience for the viewer. Ideas come from the Dragon Hall of the Hong Kong buildings. And uh, it's related in feng shui too, I, I think so. And uh, the painting is very nice. Uh, and actually, painting is uh, one of the f- uh, popular items that's always being used by the feng shui practitioner because uh, it is very nice and uh, as a decoration and also it, it is space saving. We can see the Great Hall, the State Council. They also use the painting at their back. We see the mountain 
uh, of the painting, it's been it means backup, the support of from the back. So, uh, so they use that at the state council. Yes, state council. Yeah. Uh, so it is uh, what we think the mountain. It means dragon, the power of the dragon. What is dragon? Dragon is uh, means symbolize uh, the power and a lot, and also it means to continuously the uh, energy force from the top of the mountain to the bottom. Uh, mountain uh, dragon have two uh, two kind. One kind is dragon mountain, and the other is the water dragon, just like the Victoria Harbour. Yeah. Now, if we go to Repulse Bay, there's quite a famous dragon hole in a building there. Now, um, does that mean then, if you've got a dragon that is uh, of the water and uh, and a mountain dragon, do they go through that dragon hole in both directions then? Yes. So uh, let me recap what is feng shui means. Feng shui means uh, wind and water. This is the two major energy uh, come from the universe. So uh, as I said, the mountain dragon is a female dragon and the water dragon is male dragon. They these two dragons is just like a couple, so they need to uh, have some kind of energy connect uh, by the airflow, natural airflow. So the dragon hole uh, of the repulse bay let the air, natural air, passing through uh, from the city, from place to place, and the water dragon and the mountain dragon can see each other. So what do these dragon holes mean for Hong Kong? The dragon means whole, uh, for Hong Kong is uh, as a building. I think it's a very nice design. So in the in the view of Feng Shui, it means uh, letting the energy to pass through from from place to place. Because we can see uh, in the nowadays there's a lot of uh, very high building. The buildings are built higher and higher each day, and uh, uh, there are a lot of screen block buildings, and uh, it's cause a wall effect. Uh, the water effect will block the sunlight and also the natural air to uh, to pass through the city. So uh, this will make uh, that the energy cannot pass through freely, and uh, the energy is blocked by the building by the water effect. So I think the dragon hole is a very good and nice design, and is suit for the Feng Shui concept. This one is uh, sort of a more overcast day and so uh <laughs> in hong kong <laughs> yeah which is very common so this is, is is a quite common occurrence but there's a beauty i mean there's something about that sort of mist that kind of um you know it's very kind of vacuous and kind of just there's a, there's something that you can disappear into and that's obviously there's negative connotations with pollution and air quality but for sunsets for different visual phenomena yeah, i mean pollution makes a great sunset yeah yeah so Obviously, I'm working with what I, what I, you know, as an artist, obviously, simply, we're always, you know, working with the information that we have around us. And so, as an artist, I'm just dealing with these phenomena. I'm not trying to look at it in a necessarily negative or positive way, but just presenting it and filtering it through my own processes. But there's beautiful things that would happen with these different, uh, just, just different times of day. And this, this one, um, you don't notice it at first, so I like things to kind of slowly reveal themselves, but you may start to see subtlety and the shifts of color. There's layers that are kind of built up. As, there's, as these are thicker layers that are around sort of the edges more concentrated, um, these more open spaces are more softer, and uh, it's sort of a very matte kind of finish, so they kind of, it's very softening. So it's the idea of the space that you can kind of enter into, hopefully. 
these concept of feng shui in terms of the dragon holes, um, had you been exposed to them before? Uh, the concept of feng shui itself? Yeah, it's interesting. It's funny because, uh, you know, you hear about these different design ideas. And I lived in Los Angeles, California, where many of these sort of, you know, esoteric ideas of, I mean, I used to do Tai Chi. I was into Zen Buddhism. And so I think there are sort of, there's things that I've always been curious about. I'm, I haven't, I wasn't fully aware of uh, all the details of feng shui. But I was, um, there's a thing called a Bagua map. And there's this uh, idea of a, uh, the placement of things in a room and the colors. And actually, I was really attracted to the aesthetics of feng shui and like the idea of placement and how that, even though I wasn't, I hadn't done a painting per se based on the concept of feng shui, I wondered just in the back of my mind also if a painting could, could perform that way as a, as, as a, the arrangement of form and color can happen in a room. Could it also be sort of a psychological thing that could happen in a painting? It was sort of, I don't know if I've, uh, you know, achieve that, but it's sort of a question that I had in the back of my mind. Now, in terms of, say, if you take a an Eric painting, an Eric Niebuhr painting of a dragon hole, and you were to put that in your office or in your flat, would that then represent a dragon hole? Yes, sure. Uh, in our day, uh, we can have our own dragon hole in our office and uh, home too, because uh, as a feng shui setting, uh, paintings as a feng shui setting. Painting let the energy to go through from the outside to the indoor because we can uh, categorize everything in the world in five uh, elements water, wood, fire, earth, and metal. So, in, in the feng shui setting, we can put something uh, to hold the energy in a particular spot by knowing the specific time because um, the energy is uh, intangible. Uh, so if we want the energy to stay in one particular spot, we need to have the correspondent objects uh, according to the five elements. So uh, we can see Eric's painting have a very nice different shape and different color. Different shapes and different colors represent different energy. Uh, as I said, wood and fire, earth, metal and water. Uh, for the shape, like uh, for example, the triangle means the energy energy of fire and the square square the shape of square square means the energy of uh, earth so earth means wealth uh, and health and the uh, triangular uh, object means uh, love so what we want uh, every every single item in the world and uh, shapes and colors uh, represent different issues in one's life so uh, to make use of the painting we can have our own joy hole in our own area. So that would bring good luck or? Yeah, good luck and uh, prosperity and uh, everything what you want. My thanks to Master Can Lung and artist Eric Niebuhr. Eric's exhibition Dragon Holes is on show until December the 11th at the Khaki Gallery of Objects in 2nd Street, Sai Ying Pun. <laughs> back a century to Hong Kong in 1915, when against the backdrop of war in Europe, life in the British colony continued. While a large three-quarter page advertisement in the Hong Kong Telegraph posed the patriotic question, what is your answer to Lord Kitchener's call, 300,000 men wanted now? 
some firms could have been accused of cashing in on the war in eye-catching ads. N. Lazarus, an ophthalmic optician of Queen's Road Central, drew a link between war and headaches. Have you noticed that your eyes are much more tired and that you have headaches since the war started? The advertisement read. Everyone is reading two or three times as many papers as usual. Their additional reading causes eye strain in eyes, which had been previously capable of doing all the work they were asked to. Free eye tests were offered to those with suspected war-weary eyes. Now, a couple of weeks ago, you'll recall, I was in What is Fine Art at the bottom of Old Bailey Street on the cusp of Hollywood Road. And we were talking, I was talking with Jonathan Wattis there about the photographer Robert Crisp Hurley. This is part of an exhibition that's on till the 12th of December. But in fact, I'm back because Jonathan, subsequent to that, made a, a discovery about some photos of Hong Kong that this American photographer had taken that nobody knew anything about. So, Jonathan, tell me about the photographer and what he was famous for. The name of the photographer is Charles Leander Weed, and he first came to Hong Kong in 1859 and set up a studio, and one of his assistants was Milton Miller, who was a very famous photographer of early Hong Kong. Very little is known about Charles Leander Weed and his time in Hong Kong, but we do know that he came back again in 1866 with a mammoth camera. This allowed him to take large format photographs. Uh, he is famous in America for taking the earliest uh, mammoth photographs of Yosemite, the beautiful park in uh, the southwest uh, United States. And uh, these, these, I believe, are the earliest mammoth uh, photographs of Yosemite, and there are 30 in a series. So um, this is Charles Leander Weed, yeah. American photographer, uses a mammoth camera. Can you explain? I've not ever heard that term. Well, it's, it's a, speci a special camera which allowed him to make large plate prints. And um, there's only one known photograph by Charles Leander uh, Weed, um, which is recorded in a book by Terry Bennett on early photographs in China. And we know he came in January 1866 with this particular camera, and he took a picture which is published in a book and recorded, which is a view of Causeway Bay or the Barrington area, um, which is basically showing in the foreground. It's a picture where he would have set up his camera on Morrison Hill and it looks down to a, a canal. And there you have um, the Barrington area and then Causeway Bay in the distance. Um, so this is... Um, quite, quite an extraordinary photograph because of the size of it and also it's the only known picture um, of Hong Kong um, that we, we've seen recorded. Um, we made a discovery just this uh, last week of two other, two further mammoth photographs of Hong Kong, uh, which is very exciting, which we have now uh, in, exhibiting in the gallery. And they are views in Hong Kong, which have been taken at a very similar time. So we're looking at about January 1866. And what we have views of are um, from the harbour, looking towards the waterfront or prior, and we have a series of the buildings, and in the middle is Dent's building, which this was completed in about 1866, before the company of Dent and Company went broke in 1867. They went into liquidation. Um, and so th this, this palace on the waterfront, 
um, soon changed ownership. And, and part of it is on the corner of Pedder Street. So this is central to this photograph. So you have a view of these beautiful Victorian buildings on uh, the centre of Hong Kong, central area, um, when the central area was basically uh, Devoe Road, which was the prior or waterfront at the time. And you can see various things in the background. So um, to the left and just further back, you see the Bishop's House, which still exists, and that's opposite the uh, FCC. Um, and then you can also make out things like the prison further up the hill, the Hong Kong jail. Um, you can see the clock tower in the distance, of, uh, which is at the end of uh, Pedder Street and on the junction with Queen's Road. Um, and there's a totally fascinating documentary history of this area. And then the looming behind is the, uh, the, 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 the peak. Well, it's fairly barren in this yes. picture. I mean, this is the extraordinary thing. We're looking at this until now largely undiscovered. Can I say that, Jonathan? It's been absolutely... It's a new photo, a new old photo from 1866 by Charles Leander Weed, this American photographer. And up until now, dealers and uh, art experts were only really aware of this one photograph that he'd taken during his visit to Hong Kong in 1866. And here we're looking at, as Jonathan says, this view, and it's interesting looking back at this barren peak. It almost looks like a slag heap up there. It's, it's very odd to see it without any foliage and, and no, um, no buildings on there at all. And in the foreground here, as we look across the harbour, there's a lot of blurred uh, sampans. Um, and would he have been standing on Kowloon's side for this photograph? I I think it's too. I think it's too too close to be Kowloon side. So he's actually he's, on a boat. I think he's on a boat. So how he manages to get the stationery, it must be a very still day. But nevertheless, with these, as you say, with with, with these pictures where they have an exposure, um, the camera open for a long time, they're, 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 they have these ghosts or these boats that are moving in the foreground. You can see the sampans or junks just a blur. Um, but you, as you say about the. Um, uh, if you look at the, the detail of, of the peak and below, there's all this scree and also rocks. You'd fear for a landslide. If yes. you look and you can see the detail, it's quite remarkable. Yeah, and, the detail uh, is, I mean, yeah. uh, just these buildings at the front with the windows, with yeah. the, uh, you know, we can see the bamboo scaffolding around the one building and, and just you can see the individual rocks on the side of the, the peak. I mean, the, the detail is, is beautiful on this photograph. It's got, uh, in general... What would you said that this is a even though it's a mammoth camera, it's still using silver plate technology? Yes, it's a gel, it's, it's the wet plate collodion process, and this is an albumin print, so which is a process of using egg white to sensitize paper. But the, the thing that is unusual is the large size of these particular photographic prints. They are, they are ex exceedingly rare. So and, with a uh, mammoth camera, he would have been there, would he have been under, you know, under a black... Yes, a big, a big wooden box with a great, you know, um, I suppose, hood over him, yes. Um, and he would have to probably develop it very soon afterwards as well. Do we know why he came to Hong Kong in 1866? Was this a, a holiday? Was it, was it to sell his photographs? The, the way I suspect was that he, he had been visiting areas of United States and which, which are kind of remote 
and he was a bit of an explorer. So I think it was part of his nature. I don't know the real reason, but I imagine it was uh, exploration of, uh, of the, the time because he also did a series of photographs of the gold rush and he did uh, in, in the 1850s. So quite early on, I think he was involved with, with doing daguerreotypes as well, which was a glass photograph, very early uh, type of uh, photographic plate. And uh, so, so I think it was in his nature to be a, uh, an explorer. So I think that's what it was. So he came to Hong Kong and Canton. Um, and how long did he stay? Well, at each time, we don't know, but I would imagine about a year or so. Um, because the studio that he set up, I think in about 1860, I think was taken over by Milton Miller, who was an assistant of his. Um, and then Milton Miller, in time, I think his studio was taken over by somebody else in about 1863. But these are really the early photographs, yes. among the earliest photographs of Hong Kong. Yes, I mean, if you imagine 1866, uh, we've only just had the treaty that allows uh, Britain to um, extend to Kowloon, um, so it's really early years of the colonial territory. And uh, if we look at both of these photographs side by side, the other one is a perspective uh, looking from... Uh, well, it may be looking from Scandal Point. Scandal? But, yeah, th there was a place called Scandal Point, um, which was uh, above the barracks and um, looked uh, towards the cathedral. Um, the reason being that people could stand on Scandal Point and see who was coming out of the church together on a Sunday, uh, and that's St John's Cathedral. So that's why it was called Scandal Point, or so I believe. Um, and this, this particular view is on a hill above uh, Flagstaff House or Headquarters House, which is now the Museum of Teaware. So to the right, we see the Museum of Teaware, um, well, as we know it now, in the Flagstaff House, and, and we can see the Flagstaff, and it's very close to the waterfront. Um, and then there is a, a walkway from the Flagstaff House to an area which is now um, a little tea room in the Hong Kong Park. So basically, this is from a perspective within Hong Kong Park, looking um, due west towards uh, central. And so we see in this, we see in the, beside Flagstaff House, we can see uh, the Murray Building, a, a little road meandering in. We can see the clock tower at the end of... Pedder Street, Queen's Road. We can see to the left, Roman Catholic Cathedral, Church of Immaculate Conception, uh, which is up on Wellington Street. Uh, we can see the prior, uh, which is the waterfront. And you can see along the, these beautiful um, old colonial buildings, and along the waterfront you can see people, and you can see piers, and you can see lots of detail, even down to the sampans and junks, yes. all moored off the waterfront. And then you've got in the harbour these incredible steamboats, yes. With, with twin funnels and single funnels and many, many, many boats with, with, with masts. Yeah. So you've got the age of sail and the age of steam. Um, and beyond these boats, you can see Stonecutter's Island defined. And then to the left of that, again, you can see Chingyi. Um, it is a, it's a, it's a whole, there's a whole book to be written about. There's one photograph. It's You're amazing. You're not kidding. It's, yeah. it's quite extraordinary. He's yeah. up on the hillside here, mm. looking back towards Kowloon. You've got the mountains on the other side. And yes, I mean, just from a, a perspective of maritime, I wouldn't mind speaking to somebody like Dr. Stephen Davis, the maritime historian, because it's just extraordinary what you've got in the harbour here. And I think it'll be, it's already a large photograph uh, done by this mammoth camera of Charles Leander Weed, but when you look at that, probably with a magnifying glass, Jonathan, you're going to find so much more. So much, and the size of this one is 36 by 51 centimetres, so it's even larger than the other one. I don't know why they're different sizes, but that's how we found them. Uh, but they were clearly done with the mammoth 
the mammoth plate camera, and uh, here we are. But what is also interesting is that in uh, 1866 um, was a time when Hong Kong nearly went broke, 1866-67. There were all sorts of issues with trade and all sorts of issues at the time with banks. But if you look at the volume of boats, the number of boats, you would think this was pure, this was absolute prosperity. <laughs> Tell me, when you're looking at these, I mean, first of all, what was your excitement about making a discovery like this? Well, first of all, I, didn't, I, I couldn't believe they were genuine when I saw them because they seemed to be too large. Because sometimes when I get a really good image of Hong Kong, I may get a very high-resolution scan and in a modern context make a blow-up or a bigger image of it because then you see so much detail um, which you wouldn't necessarily see in the smaller format. But these were genuinely made at that time and they are um, among the rarest early photographs of, uh, that I've seen of Hong Kong, um, and they're very special. My thanks to Jonathan Wattis, Eric Niebuhr, and Master Can Lung. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>